Amen. So it's a joy to be with you this morning, and i um, grateful for the opportunity um, to be here. So I'm going to try my best to speak slow and clear, so you can understand what I'm saying. My church is used to me, and so when I get preaching, I kind of forget where I'm at sometimes. And so, um, and so I'll try my best uh, to, to do so that you'll be able to understand what I'm saying. I do appreciate um, the invitation, appreciate the opportunity to come and to share with you. And certainly appreciate and encourage you to continue to pray for the nation of Scotland and for the work there. And I'd uh, be delighted to to speak with you more um, afterwards about that work as well. Before we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Dear good and gracious Heavenly Father, we do come now at this time to... Open your word, and we, we trust, Lord, in your word. We hope in your word, Father. We, we believe in your word, and we Father, have confidence in your word. That you would use it even now to build your church. That we might bear the image of Christ and live our lives for his glory. We'll do that which you've already set out to do in this place and for your glory we ask. Amen. Amen. If you would turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16 this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, I'm going to read from verses 24 to 28. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, we're going to start from verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of, the, of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. I want us to consider this morning the the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus Christ. As we, uh, our Ministry 20 schemes, works to plant churches and some very difficult to reach places in Scotland where there is often much hostility against those who profess the name of Jesus, where in many ways it's a very costly work to go and minister in one of the most costly places to live in in Western Europe. Where in many ways it's a messy life, getting alongside those who are trapped in addiction and 
and drugs and in many ways it's a significant calling, a significant thing to consider to, to call missionaries to, to leave their place of comfort, their, their home, their family and to go to a place where they've never been before and to live amongst the people who they've never met before, to live amongst the people who perhaps would even hate them. And so I want us to consider this morning what it is, the cost of discipleship. What is that cost? What is the cost of building healthy gospel churches? What is the cost of going? What is the cost of living out our lives even here for the glory of Christ? What is the cost of discipleship, of being a follower of Jesus? There's a story of a missionary from the 1800s. You may perhaps be familiar with this story. It's uh, one that's been told often before. A Scottish missionary by the name of, of John Patton who was sent to the New Hebrides Islands. The New Hebrides Islands are a, a string of islands that are found two-thirds of the way from Hawaii to Australia. The population today of these islands is 190,000 people. But up until the initial missionaries, John Williams and James Harris, went to the New Hebrides Islands, there had been no Christian influence there at all. John Williams and James Harris were sent from, by the London Missionary Society in 1839 to make the long, arduous, treacherous journey to these islands. Upon landing... On the New Hebrides, John Williams and James Harris were immediately killed and immediately eaten by the cannibals on that island within just minutes of going ashore, leaving their family, leaving their loved ones, leaving all that they'd known and trusted in and believed in embarking on a treacherous and arduous journey, and within minutes, their life given up for Christ. A young Christian man by the name of John G. Patton heard of their story. And he was deeply affected by the news of, of their death. So I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting back in Scotland and hearing the story of missionaries going to a, a far-off land that takes months to get to, and I hear that upon arriving on that shore, they were killed within minutes and eaten by cannibals, then perhaps the last thing I'm going to think is, yeah, sign me up. I'm up for that. The John Patton is quickly overcome by a sense of a divine call to go and continue the work that Harris and Williams set out to do. And there's this exchange in Patton's journals between him and a minister in, in a meeting that he was at, a man named Mr. Dixon. When John Patton expressed his desire to take his wife and his son to the New Hebrides to minister amongst these Aborigine cannibals, this Mr. Dixon exploded. The cannibals! You'll be eaten by the cannibals! To which John Patton replies, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. 
there to be eaten by worms. But I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference at all whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day of my resurrection, my body will rise as fair as yours. And so John Patton sailed off to the New Hebrides with his wife Mary on April the 16th, 1858, 33 years of age. Now he gets there and he makes it longer than the other guys. Right? He survives more than just the first few hours. In fact, four years he's able to remain there and to faithfully minister there and to serve there. Four hard, painful years where he suffers severe hardship. Patton watched both his wife and his son die on that island. And eventually Patton himself is driven off the island by the cannibals. So in February 1862, just four years after leaving England, he himself is forced to leave and to go on to Australia. No convents. Nothing to, for which he can, he can look to and seize the fruit of his labour. He arrives with his wife and his son and he leaves with nothing. He leaves the grave of his wife and his son behind. This was not the plan. This was not how things were supposed to go. Had he given up his wife and his child only for he himself to flee the island? For what? For nothing? No converts? No church? Nothing? John Patton says this. His words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end, that came to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him, as Stephen did, gazing down upon the sea. It is the sober truth that I had my nearest and most intimate glimpse of the presence of my Lord in those dreadful moments when musket and club and spear were being leveled at my life. This is my strength. This is my peace. To feel in entering in every day that all its duties and trials have been committed unto the Lord Jesus. That come what may, he will use this. For his glory and our real good. It was not for nothing. It was for Christ and his glory. So we consider the cost of discipleship and we read these verses in Matthew chapter 16. I want us to consider what Jesus is teaching us here about what it is, the, the cost of following Jesus. What it means to be a true follower of Christ, what it is that Jesus is calling us to. Here's what I want us to see. It's our main point. Being a follower of Jesus is costly. But the cost should not be understood in terms of how much we are prepared to give up. But rather by how much we declare Christ to be worth. Being a follower of Jesus is costly. But the cost should not be understood in how much we are prepared to give up, but rather by how much we consider Christ to be worth. 
In these verses here, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, he's laying out for us the price of discipleship. He does three things here in, in our text, and we'll unpack it here together. First, he names the price of discipleship. Then he gives, he gives a perspective. He, he, he changes their perspective. He changes their view of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And then he ends it by making a promise. So he names the price, he gives a perspective, and he makes a promise. First, the price. Then Jesus told his disciples, first. 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus names the price. If anyone would come after me, if anyone were to follow me, if anyone were to be my disciple, then let him deny himself. And let him take up his cross. And let him follow me. What in your life is there that if God were to take it away from you, it might cause you to stop worshipping him? What in your life is there that if God were to remove it from you, it might cause you to stop worshipping Him. It's a gut-wrenching question. But it's one that really gets to the heart of who we are. Is Christ of infinite worth to you? And do you trust Him with everything? This is the hard and the real and the painful reality of following Jesus. That Christ, Christ is of infinite worth to us as Christians. That He rises above anything else that this world has to offer us. That everything else that we hold on to, whether it's our health or our money or our finances or our job or our career, or even our, our family, the place where we live, our dreams, our aspirations, our hopes, our desires for this life, all those things that we hold on to. And yet then we come and we come to Jesus. Now we hold on to Christ and we declare that Jesus is of infinite worth to us. That all these other things are of lesser value to us. Because nothing, nothing compares to the worth and the glory and the treasure that is Jesus to us. thing is, if we are truly honest, the truth is much of, of our Christian church, much of our experience even as Christians is, is not based on the worth of Jesus, but rather is based on our sense of self-worth. Our sense of self-centeredness. Many churches are built on this consumer mentality amongst believers. We, we come to Jesus, but we name the price. We come to Jesus, but we name the price. And if the price is not right, then we are not willing to come, or, perhaps more frequently, we make up a very different Jesus. 
who presents to us a very different price. Some are even deceived into thinking that Jesus has accepted their bargain. Well, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I worship Jesus. I I love Jesus. I've I've prayed the prayer and accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Saviour. Now I read the Bible. I go to church once in a while. I've been baptised. I don't sin as much as I once did. But is this the true extent of discipleship that Jesus lays out here for his followers? Can we honestly say that when we examine what is perhaps our picture of Christianity, alongside Christ's clear picture of discipleship here, do they line up? When we examine how we view coming to Christ compared to what Jesus presents here, And perhaps we have to ask ourselves, are we really following Jesus at all? You see, there are those who claim the name of Jesus Christ and yet are only following Jesus for what they think they might get out of Jesus. Maybe it's fear of hell and so I'm going to follow Jesus and it's a means to have this sense of security that I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm going to hold on to that and and I'm going to treasure that, but it doesn't really impact my life or change who I am or think about my, my, how I live out every day for the sake of the glory of Jesus. There are those who claim to follow Jesus because they believe that Jesus is the key to a, a healthy and perhaps even a prosperous life. If you do this, then Jesus will do this for you. He'll make you healthy. He'll heal your sickness and your disease. He will... Who will make you prosper in all the things you set out to do. So yes, yes, that's great. That's a good deal. I'm going to follow Jesus. And that's a good exchange, a good bargain. Now it is true that in following Jesus, there's much reward for us, even in this life. Now there's much for us to, in terms of our sense of joy and peace and satisfaction and contentment. And even overcoming trials and temptation and struggles that we face. But friends, as we follow Jesus, we do not follow him as a means of escape from the current struggles and trials that we're facing in this life. If that's the deal that we've done with Jesus, then it's a bad deal. If we follow Jesus for any worldly gain at all, then we do not follow Jesus at all. You see, we do not have the right to set the terms when it comes to following Christ. He says it quite clearly here to his disciples. Who Jesus, Peter himself, in, in earlier on, chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, Jesus has asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter has now confessed Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And now Jesus lays out for the disciples what this means for them. What does it mean to follow the Messiah? What does it mean to follow Jesus, the Savior? He says this so clearly, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. 
Christ the King sets for us the terms. We are lost sinners. We are beggars. We are rebels. And we certainly don't have the right to walk up to the King and to make our counter offer. Jesus asks for everything. Deny yourself. Lay down your life. Follow me. I don't know about you, but those words there, I mean, it seems pretty far-fetched. It seems, I don't know, a big deal. I'm going to follow Jesus means I'm going to deny myself. Literally meaning I'm going to enter into poverty. I'm going to let go of everything that I own and that I have and that, uh, that I'm holding on to in this world. I'm going to walk away from all of that in order to, to follow Jesus. That I'm going to take up my cross, literally meaning I'm going to be willing to die to this one Jesus? That's what it means to be a follower of Christ? And certainly the disciples understood what Jesus was meaning here. There was no confusion to them when they heard his words. They knew this was a big deal. This was not just a religious cliche that Jesus was putting on the table to these guys. He's saying, look men, if you're going to follow me, this is what it means to follow me, it means you're going to deny yourself. There's no going back. You can't kind of follow me for a season and hold on to everything else over here. You can have one foot in the world, one foot in the camp of Jesus. Although one of them did. Judas. Who thought he was following Jesus because he was close to Jesus, because he heard the teachings of Jesus, because he liked what he thought he was going to get out of Jesus. Sense of worldly gain and position and power and influence. And yet Jesus so clearly here tells us that he was never following at all. And we likewise must check our own hearts and examine our own souls and ask, Am I truly following Jesus? Am I truly following Jesus? Do I count Jesus Christ as infinitely worthy? That I'm willing to let go of all that this world offers me in order to follow and make much of Christ. The truth is that we deserve nothing at all from Jesus. All we deserve is judgment and condemnation for we are sinners, rebels against our holy God. The price we pay as disciples, that we are denying ourselves, that we are taking up our cross. Look, we do not do that in order to gain the favour of an angry God, in order to demonstrate or prove our love for Him. We do not kind of give up our life and give up our worldly possessions and give up our dreams and aspirations in order to somehow gain salvation, gain the love and the affection of Jesus. To prove to him, look, Jesus, look what I've given up for you. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not saying that we do this in order to gain the love of God. No, no, we do this because God loves us. We are able to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow Jesus because God first loved us. 
He came to us. Jesus came to the disciples and called them to follow him. And he went to the cross first for them and for us. The price we pay is not to to appease God's righteous anger against our sin or to buy his favour. Rather, the price we pay is because Christ is infinitely worthy to us. He is worthy. There is nothing of greater worth than Jesus. It is recognising that he alone is worthy. That when I look at the world and I look at, at all that I've built in this life, And I look at Jesus, now I see that what I have is no longer worth anything to me. That what Jesus is calling us to do here, although it seems difficult and hard and painful and costly, and yet, in reality, what Jesus is asking us to do is easy. Because Christ himself has gone to the cross to die in our place, now he invites us to follow him. He invites us to let go of that which is of no value in order to hold on to that which is of infinite value. This is the motivation for John Patton to go and move to a land that he had never seen, the people he had never met, to lose his wife and his children and to stay there and to not lose heart. Not because he was seeking to appease an angry God, but because he knew his God loved him. Because he knew that he was no longer condemned. Because he knew there is nothing comparable to the weight of the glory of Christ Jesus. Because he knew Jesus Christ is worthy. That's the key to discipleship, to to following Jesus. That's the key to resisting temptation. That's the key to get sucked up into the ways and, and the distractions of this world. Is to again and again and again remind ourselves of the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the love and the riches of Christ. It's there for us. If you come to Jesus, you come on his terms. And what are his terms? Deny yourself. Follow me. Repent. Turn. Trust in me. To come to Jesus, you must recognize that I am nothing. I have nothing. I bring nothing. It is all of Jesus. To come to Jesus, to recognize that I am a beggar. Bankrupt before a holy God. Only desperate people come to God. When you know you cannot do anything about your sin, when you know that you're bankrupt before Him. So, what is it to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus when we're already bankrupt before Him? We are to daily be denying ourselves. Daily be dying to our flesh. The whole world is against us in this. But Christ is worthy. He names the price. It's a high price. Deny yourself. Follow me. Pick up your cross. But then he, he helpfully gives these, these disciples the right perspective. The view that they're to have as they do this. Because yes, it seems such a high calling. These guys have already given up so much for Jesus. 
And now he's telling them, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. But then verse 25, so helpfully, so, so lovingly, Jesus says these words. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will the profit a man if he gains the whole world? And he forfeits his life. For what shall a man give in return for his life? It's easy in verse 24 to think, man, I'm going to give up so much. And what does this mean? It means it's going to be a hard life. I may even have to die for Jesus. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. This is the the, the task he, he... calls us to his believers and, and it could be a heavy weight it can be a, a struggle for us to even consider that and then Jesus helpfully lays out the perspective that we're to have as followers of Jesus well what is it to follow Christ for whoever would save his life or lose it whoever loses his life for my sake will find it again he's He's naming the price, but he's saying, look guys, this is a good deal. This is an incredible deal that that God is offering you. If you surrender to Him, if you follow Him, if you lay down your life for Him, do you understand what this means for you? For what the world offers us is empty. And for what the world offers us leaves us bankrupt. He changes their perspective in order that they might have a, a greater glimpse of the glory and the worth of Christ. You see, there is a fight going on in our lives every day. And each of us battle with this fight every day of the week. It's a, a fight for, for really keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ or, or continue to be distracted by the things of the world that, that blinds us to the glory of Christ. And, and we can find ourselves, just, just even unwittingly, Having our eyes gazing again at the things of the world and the treasures of the world and the desires of the world and of the flesh. And all of a sudden it can begin to look attractive to us and appealing to us and, and offer us something of, of value and of worth. And then our walk of Christ becomes diminished and, and temptation becomes all the more strong and obedience becomes all the more difficult. And he knew that to be true for the disciples. For he truly was asking them to give up everything and to take up their cross and to follow. And as each one of them eventually would do, as they laid down their life for the glory of Christ. And friends, as disciples of Jesus Christ today, there is no less commanded of us. There is no less commanded of us it is not that this, deny yourself and follow me and pick up your cross, is just some kind of, 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 of command for some super Christian. It's not like this is some command for those who are living in, in some place where, where they're to cut this kind of radical faith day after day in their life when it literally means that you're going to potentially be killed for the sake of following Jesus. But no, this is for all believers, for all disciples of Jesus Christ, including you and including me today. Sometimes it's harder for us to see this and it, it, as we are blinded by, by the relative ease with which we have in this culture, in this nation, to be a follower of Christ. But, but the command is no less for us. 
the expectation is, is no less or no dim, not diminished in any way for us. Helpfully, Jesus changes perspective because it can certainly look like, man, they've given up so much for Jesus. And there are times in our life when we are struggling, when we are persevering in the faith, and when it just seems like we get beat down again and again and again. And certainly there are moments, perhaps you're going through a moment right now in your life when it feels like, when is this going to end? It just seems like things are getting harder, not easier. Seems that like the struggle is getting more intense, not less. And this the expectation that Jesus has for these men that look, things are not going to get easier for you. Things are going to get more and more difficult. But, but look, this is the key to surviving and persevering and enduring when things get more painful and more difficult. Remember this, he says. For whoever would save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will the profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his life? I can look at the nation of Scotland today where it's estimated 2% of the population are evangelical Christian. Some 50, 60 years ago, 40 to 50% of the nation of Scotland was active in church attendance. And yet, in the last five decades, church attendance has halved every decade. There's been this cataclysmic decline in, in evangel- evangelical Christianity in the nation of Scotland. The, the, the nation that was once the, considered the land of the book that produced John Knox, that, that sent out missionaries like David Livingston, John G. Patton, Eric Little, has produced great in Christianity and yet today you'll go to many communities and many places where most people will live and will die having never heard the gospel and will never meet the Christian what happened to Scotland it's easy to look at that and feel defeated it's easy to look at that and feel like like Satan has won and Christ has lost and yet Jesus helpfully gives us his perspective and says It may look like that to you, but never be fooled into thinking that way. Even in the United States today, in our culture, in our society today, it can seem like things are getting harder for Christians. It's it's more and more of a struggle to be a a faithful follower of Christ in our place of work, in our school, in our family. As hostility is rising against us, as as the, the expectations of us as a follower of Jesus seems all the more costly. And we can look at that in one sense and we can say, Jesus, where are you? Seems like the church is losing. Seems like Satan is winning. You are diagnosed with a sickness or a disease or if you suddenly lose your job or you hear some devastating news and you see just little by little more and more of yourself peeled away and taken away. And it's easy for us to be beat down and say, Jesus, where are you? Where are you? And Jesus knew all too well that these disciples were going to face that. They were going to face persecution, hatred. They were going to lose everything. Their reputation, their family their friends. There was no going back and they themselves would pick up their cross and many, most would die for Jesus. 
the key to persevering and enduring with Christ is recognizing, as he himself says, for what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits its life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? There is nothing that will profit us here. Either your health or your wealth or your job or your career or your family, your reputation in your community, nothing, there is nothing that offers us profit here in this world. But Christ. So when it's all stripped away and we're left with nothing and yet we are still holding on to Jesus Christ, we still have everything. You have a choice. You can either live now in this world and, and go for it now and kind of take everything you can out of this world. And pursue this world and chase after this world and live an utterly world-centered life. But friends, Jesus warns us, you will lose your life forever. Well, you can give it up now. In this temporary, fleeting existence. Give it up and let go. And we will gain Christ forever. If a person truly follows Jesus Christ, he abandons his own sense of self-security, his own sense of comfort, his own ambitions, his own dreams. And he simply pursues Jesus. And finds his joy and contentment and comfort and security and satisfaction in Christ. That's a life worth living. A few months ago I was back in Scotland with a guy named Stephen. And Stephen was a bit of a thug. He was uh, kind of a big guy, uh, um, uh, actually a national boxing champion in Scotland in his division. He was known as the local drug runner in his community. He was a serious guy. I mean, he was a scary guy. Everybody in his community respected him. Everybody in his community feared him. Stephen never imagined that he would ever set foot inside a church. I was with him just back in February and we were driving to a, a church plant in, in Glasgow, and I was just asking him, what was your life like as you growing up in this community, and, and, and how has it changed? See, Stephen, in February, was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and became a believer, and his whole life was torn apart by that. There was no going back for Stephen. When, when Stephen entered into the into the the doors of Nidri Community Church, when Stephen heard the gospel, when Stephen saw his brother transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when Stephen had no answers anymore for what he was seeing being done in his own community, lives of people being transformed, those hooked on heroin, able to walk away from it, those caught up in lives of drugs, able to, to separate themselves from it. He could no longer deny the power that was happening in this community. And when Stephen himself comes in and hears the preaching of the gospel and is transformed by it, his life is now totally changed because of it. So I asked Stephen and said, what is it about your life before you were 
a drug dealer and you're a drug runner and you're a thug and now you're a follower of Jesus. What is it that's most transformed in your life? And I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably expecting to say something about addiction or about uh, just about his, his lifestyle, about his, his sense of, of identity or security. No, Stephen says, before I became a Christian, the thing that worried me more than anything was not making money. The thing that worried me more than anything was not, you know, chasing after worldly pleasures. The things that I was chasing after was respect in this community. The thing that kept me up at night was that the, do the people too still respect me? And he was tortured by it. And he didn't want to do anything to show any sign of weakness or vulnerability. He had to maintain the respect of his community. But he says that when I became a Christian, I was able to let go of all that. I was able to walk away from all that. Because now Christ gets my respect. And Christ gets my worship. And Christ, he gets all the glory. And that is what set me free. That's what enables me to do, to walk away from to be able to continue to walk in these streets and not be concerned what do people think about me. Because now the only thing that bothers me is what do they think about him. You see, it isn't that we have to give up everything and live our lives in some kind of commune. And kind of that's not what he means here when he says deny yourself and follow me. You know, it doesn't mean that we're all supposed to just kind of give up our jobs, give up our money, kind of, you know, go and live in some kind of monastic community. No, what it means is that we're to let, let our grip off the world and tighten our grip on Christ and no longer define ourselves by the things of the world, but allow our lives to be defined by the very person and nature and character of Christ. It means to pick up our cross and follow Him. It's a stark choice. But that's the reality we face every day. If you throw your life away now in order to chase after things of this empty, dead, dying, decaying, deceiving world, then you will be bankrupt forever. But if you abandon your life now and give it up to Jesus, you will be rich forever. Do you count Christ as worthy? Do you count Christ as as sufficient. This is a life of obedience to a God who radically loves us. It is total and absolute abandonment to Christ, knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that kind of life look like for you? What does that kind of life look like for you tomorrow when you go to work? What does that kind of life look like to you when you go to bed tonight and all those thoughts are are racing through your mind? What does that kind of life look like to you when you deal with your children, with your family, with your neighbors? Then, wonderfully, Jesus makes this beautiful promise. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. 
and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There is a day coming. There is a day of accounting coming. There's a day when the judge is going to come. A day when Jesus himself will come in the fullness of his glory. And every person, every person, every living, breathing person in this room right now, every living, breathing person ever to set foot on this earth, there is a day when each one of us will stand before this Christ. And the only thing that will count on that day is it's the way we lived our life. The manner by which we lived, we lived our life. Have we declared Christ as glorious and as King? Have we repented and, and turned away from a, a form of life? Turning away from declaring ourselves as King and chasing after the pleasures of the world? And if we declare Christ as King, He will know it. How? By the life that we live, by the works that we've done. Our works do not save us, but on that day, our work will reveal us. We are not saved by our deeds, but it is by our deeds that we declare whether or not Christ is worthy. Every person will give an account for their works, the fruit of their life. And I pray that the life that we live in the few years, decades, however long we have, I pray that we, we chase after the life that, that declares that Jesus Christ is worthy. So that on that day when we stand before Christ as our King, we might be able to look at our life and not be able to say, Jesus, look at all the things that I've done for you, but not be able to look at our life and say, but Jesus, I pray that by my life you were declared worthy. Of my greatest treasure, the object of my greatest praise, my hope, my glory. See, Christ is making a promise here to his disciples. Says, look, if you want to be a follower of me, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross. You need to follow me. Be willing to die. Be willing to forsake the things of this world. But let me tell you what that means. It means that really you're giving up things that have no value and you're gaining something that has infinite value, which is the very person of Christ. And so really it's a good deal anyway. So hold on, press on, hold on to that. When things get tough and things are hard, remember that. Keep your focus on Jesus who remains worth it even when the world looks like things are getting hard. But he is still worth it. And then he makes his promise, but I am coming back for you. I'm coming for you. And on that day, nothing will be wasted. Every trial, every test, every temptation, every, every hostility and every opposition that you come against. Everything you endure, every sickness... Everything that you endure, everything is designed in your life that you might declare that Jesus Christ is worthy. And in doing so, 
none of it is wasted. Because there will come a day when we will lay down our lives, weak and feeble and, and as fragile as they are. And the one thing that will remain is did we live in a manner that declared Christ is worthy. That by His Spirit, He is enabling us to live this life that we might bear fruit for Him, declaring Him to be glorious. A few years ago, I was in Nicaragua, and Nicaragua suffered a great earthquake in 1972, but there's a great thing about, uh, stunning thing about going to Managua, Nicaragua, and some of you may have been there, is that it still looks like it's the earthquake was just a few years ago. Because they never rebuilt the city. The city is still in ruins. Why? Because there was all the, uh, the world uh, relief money that was given to the, the government in, in Managua and Nicaragua was squandered. It was wasted. And you don't get a second shot at it. And so because it was squandered and wasted by corrupt officials, the, the city still lies in ruins. And what strikes me is I'm walking around the city of ruins. And so that's in many ways a picture of our world. It's a picture of our lives. And sometimes all we see is the ruins and the decay. The life of sin and the shame and the baggage that we carry. A world that hates God and hates Christ and is growing in, in rebellion against Him. Uh, neighborhoods and communities that are, are fierce in their hostility against the very person of Jesus. And sometimes we can look at our life, can't we? And we can see that our life is just, it looks like it's, it's ruins. I look at my past mistakes and my past sin and I can look at the, the consequences of that and, and it can seem like I'm just slowly making my way through the rubble and the ruins of this forsaken life. Jesus makes a promise here and he says, look, but I'm coming. I'm coming back to rescue you from this forsaken world. So that although all you see is ruins and rubble and decay all around you, what Christ sees is His bride. He will come and claim for His glory and will emerge from the rubble and the decay of this broken world as pure, as fine, as lovely as Christ intends for it to be. That's the promise. What we see is not what God sees. We are the redeemed. And Christ is coming for us. If you're here this morning and perhaps you've never counted Christ as your Saviour, perhaps you've never fully trusted in Him as your Lord, and let me tell you, there is a warning here in the very words of Jesus that there is a day coming when you will give an account to Him. But today is the day of salvation when He offers to you, follow me. You may be thinking, well, there's just too much in my life. I've got to change. Too much I've got to give up. There's too much. I just can't possibly do that. Friends, open your eyes and see Jesus who has come to forgive you of your sins. And see Him as worthy. Trust in Him as your Savior, Lord. Put your hope in Him. 
and he will restore you. That your life might declare his glory to the nations. And Christian, how is your life revealing the worth of Christ? At work, in your family, even as a church. How are you declaring that Jesus Christ is worthy? How are you denying yourself daily? How are you walking in obedience? Daily confessing and repenting and believing. Enduring and persevering. John Patton eventually remarried. And he took his new wife, Margaret, back to the New Hebrides Islands. What a woman. Having heard all the stories of, of John Patton, and, and no doubt they were pretty colourful stories of what that life looked like on that island, and knowing that the first wife of John Patton is buried in that island, and yet Margaret faithfully goes with John. John and Margaret Patton worked together faithfully for 45 years on those islands. And they built orphanages where they held worship services and they went into every village across the whole string of those islands, islands and they preached the gospel even against fierce opposition. Within 15 years of Margaret and John Patton landing for the second time on those islands, it is reported that the entire island turned to Christ. Every one of them acknowledging Christ as their Lord. John Patton wrote in his journal towards the end of his life, I claimed Aniwa, it's the name of one of the islands, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Saviour's feet. Patton died in Australia on January the 28th, 1907. And shortly before his death, John Patton wrote to his family these following words. Let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would, without one quiver of hesitation, lay it again at the altar of Christ. That he might use it, as before, in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who've never heard the name of Jesus. Nothing that has been endured, and nothing that can befall me, makes me tremble. On the contrary, I deeply rejoice. Allow God's Spirit to change your heart through His Word. Be changed in the image of Christ. Make that which is invisible to the world visible to the world, the very person of Jesus. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow Christ. Give up any self-serving motive. Give up vain and empty pursuits. Give up your guilt and shame from your past. Give it up to Christ. For the King has come, 
And he's building his kingdom. And there is only one king. And he loves you. And he stands with you. And he calls you. And he restores you. We are to be about the business of declaring that above everything in this world, Jesus Christ alone is of infinite worth to us. That is our task. Proclaim the kingdom that the kingdom of Christ might be advanced. We have an urgent task. Whether we're sending missionaries to the schemes of Scotland or whether we're planting our lives right here and faithfully going to work each day, we have an urgent task. We have a glorious king. We must declare his worth and live for his glory. Let's pray. And to God, I pray that for each one of us, we may treasure Christ more. Father, we may loosen our grip on the things of this world that entangles us and blinds us. We would cherish the things of Christ. Oh God, I pray for this church and for each one of us gathered here this morning, we might declare that Christ alone is worthy. Christ alone is worthy. In his name we pray. Amen.